Welcome to Israel from the Inside, where we try to break out of the echo chamber, surfacing the wide array of often conflicting viewpoints that make up the mosaic of Israeli life. I'm Daniel Gordas of Shalem College in Jerusalem. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can subscribe to these podcasts and join our community of listeners and readers, access the archive of all these episodes, and post comments, interacting with others who share your interest in Zionism, Israel, and the future of the Jewish state. I have the pleasure of sitting today with a person who is both a, a friend and a colleague at the Shalem Center with me at Shalem College in Jerusalem. Um, Colonel Dr. Iran Lerman uh, has a BA in Modern Middle Eastern History and General History from Tel Aviv University. Then he got an MPA from the Kennedy School of Government. He has a PhD in Economics and Political Science from the London School of Economics. Lots and lots of credentials, but perhaps most important for our conversation today, which is going to focus on Iran, which is back in the news, because the Iran deal is back in the news and Israel's responses to the Iran deal are back in the news. Uh, most importantly, therefore, uh, 20 years in military intelligence, more or less than eight years as director of the Israel office of the AJC, uh, and then from 2009 to 2015, uh, national, deputy national security advisor uh, for the Israeli government. So there's very few people in the world who have uh, a better ability to speak about the subject that we want to talk about. And here's the main question, Iran. It's a very simple question. Everybody knows Iran doesn't like Israel. Not everybody remembers that there was a very different period under the Shah. El Al was flying back and forth from Tel Aviv to Tehran. There's a monument to Israeli-Iranian friendship in Israel. It's 200 kilometers long and it leaks from time to time. It's called the Eilat Ashkelon Pipeline. and It was built to carry Iranian crude to the Mediterranean. So that gives you a sense of just how uh, good it was once upon a time. It was once very good. And now it's, of course, very bad. But I think many people don't, when they think about it, walking down the sidewalk and stopping their tracks, well, why is it so bad? Because... We don't share a border with them. We don't really have any security issues with them. It's not a water issue. It's not a, not an oil issue. It's an ideological issue. People understand that. But much beyond that, many people don't understand. And given the fact that Iran's back in the news and the fact that there's nobody better to explain this from an Islamic Iranian perspective to help us understand how they see the world, you're the guy. Um, so thank you very much, first of all, for taking the time to have this conversation today. And um, let's dive right in. Why is Iran so absolutely committed, at least so they say, to Israel's destruction? Yeah, thank you for all these compliments, which I barely deserve, but let's get into it. Clearly, uh, Israel has taken not a sheep nor a ewe from, from the Iranian people. We have no border issues. We, have, we are not economic competitors. There's no strategic reason. Um, this is where the wisdom of realists um, with us, because Iran should not be an, uh, an enemy of Israel under any realistic scheme of things. It is driven here 
by ideology. Ideas matters, identity matters, and this is a combination, a very lethal combination of aspects of the ideology of the present Iranian regime and the identity of the Persians, the Iranian people, historically uh, from the 15th, 16th century onwards, as the Shia standouts in a largely Sunni uh, Muslim world. And the combination is lethal because it generates a sense of mission. So let me walk this uh, through step by step. The revolution in 1979, which brought Khomeini, Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, back from his uh, exile in Paris to power in Iran, was the product of a hybrid idea, which we see elsewhere also in the Sunni world. You see the imprint of modern totalitarian ideology, politics, the promise of a revolutionary change in the way the world works, in, in the existing international order, in the social and human conditions. Uh, the promise of a revolution through political means, which we saw in the red Bolshevik version, we saw the brown fascists and the black Nazi versions, totalitarian, modern totalitarian movements that transformed their countries. Some would say to catastrophic results, clearly, but this was a very powerful influence on a certain generation, a certain class of thinkers in Muslim countries from the late 1920s onwards. And there were Sunni versions, the Muslim Brotherhood, Jamaat Islam in India and later Pakistan. But in the, in the case of Iran, there was an added dimension. And here we are talking about the manner in which ideas such as those of Franz Fanon, the French Caribbean officer who, who basically crossed the lines and joined the Algerian rebellion, the FLN, and then became a major intellectual influence. He writes about the wretched of the earth, how the world is divided between masters and people who were formerly uh, their uh, uh, enslaved populations. Uh, in his case, he speaks clearly also about people of color. And in the case of the, uh, the Shia story, um, it, is, it was not difficult for this to be absorbed into a worldview fed by hundreds of years of grievance in which the Iranians and other Shia look at the history of Islam, therefore the history of the world, as something that has gone catastrophically wrong. Now that's an idea we Jews can understand, you know, for 2,000 years we, we were in the wrong end of history. Uh, Christians uh, were, you know, suffered for 300 years until Constantine saw the light. Um, Sunnis are born to believe that the good guys won. Shias are bred to believe that the good guys lost in the great battle in the 7th century. Well, we have to go back to that for a second to explain to people what that division in early Islam was about and all of that. Very quickly, um, it, it actually is family and politics. The son-in-law of the Prophet, Ali, therefore the father of the Prophet's grandchildren, Hassan and uh, Hussein, known together as the Hassanain, it's uh, an Arabic form of, of two, 
he was uh, a caliph for a while until uh, he was uh, uh, overthrown. And the, the belief of the Shia is that the line of the succession should have gone to him first, not third, and that he should have been always not only the caliph, and, but, but to have inherit to, to, to pass this on to his inheritance in the line of the family of the Prophet. And uh, for them, for the Shia, Ali is almost, almost at the same level of holiness and importance as Prophet himself. And they believe that the fact that he was defeated and, the, and, and killed, and then his sons, which rose against the, the newly governing, new governing dynasty, were slaughtered in the Battle of Karbala. So basically you're looking at a history of 1300 years of grievance, of history gone wrong. Um, most uh, Shia believe that uh, there was a succession of living uh, descendants of, uh, of the Prophet, of Ali, Vavaya Ali, um, who were leaders, even if they were hunted and if they were in hiding, but they were still the true leaders of the world. And then the 12th, and according to another tradition, the 5th, simply vanished and we are still awaiting his return. This is, there's a streak of messianic, messianic thought that, that is not unfamiliar to us in the Jewish tradition, the Christian tradition. It exists very strongly in the Shia tradition as opposed uh, to the uh, Sunni version, which basically sanctifies uh, in retrospect what already happened. What actually happened. Right. You cannot swear my nation on to, to support a mistake. So by definition, what happened was not a mistake. What happened was the true path. That is the Sunni way. Okay. So that's a Sunni-Shia divide. That's the basic origin of the Sunni-Shia divide and why uh, the, in, in the Shia way of looking at history, there's this inbred sense of a grievance that one day will be put to rights. Now combine this with the elements of modern ideology. And the totalitarian state. And the totalitarian state. And the manner in which Choeni, in his exile in France, basically uh, incorporates this sense of cosmic grievance of the wretched with the Shia tradition of uh, a, a vision of a new, a new world to come. And you have the making of a very lethal hybrid of totalitarianism in politics and a, uh, and, and a religious identity. Now, people who are listening are probably scratching their heads and saying, okay, I get all of that. I get the Sunni-Shia divide. I get how Khomeini uh, integrated and, and melded this, 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 the Shia sense of having been wronged with totalitarian ideology. But they're wondering, how does Israel, of all things, fit into this whole picture? Okay, what happens is uh, Iran under the Shah, of course, was Israel's friend. Uh, the enemy, the common enemy, was Arab nationalist, uh, social, socialist nationalism. Let's not 
take it a step too far. But basically, Gamal Abd al-Nasser in Egypt, the Ba'ath in Syria. And Pan-Arabism, essentially. Pan-Arabism, the idea that the Arab world could be united under a revolutionary, uh, secular revolutionary leadership. Israel would be conquered in the process and and, uh, others in the margins of the region would be uh, subject to Arab hegemony in one way or the other. Interestingly enough, in the late 50s, uh, Ben-Gurion cooks up uh, an alliance called Trident uh, of Israel, Turkey uh, as a secular um, country at the time, a secular republic, and the two monarchies, Iran under the Shah and Ethiopia still uh, under under the emperor. And at the time, uh, this was all to contain Arab hostility. But from the 1970s onwards, we are seeing uh, a turnaround. The most important Arab Sunni country, Egypt, signs a peace treaty with Israel. In 1994, so did Jordan. By the way, right around the same time. 77, 78, 79. 79, 79 is actually a, a, a decisive year in many ways. So, it, so the, Israeli, peace. the Israeli treaty with Egypt comes more or less at the same time as the Iranian revolution. Right. It's Three things happened. There's the peace treaty with Egypt in March, and then the, and the Iranian revolution, and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, which also changes the way uh, everyone looks at the place of the Muslim world in the context of the Cold War. So put all of these things together and the Iranian position is essentially, look, all these Sunni regimes, all these Sunni semi-secularized nations which raise the flag of revolution but not a true religious revolution, failed and laid down their flags and surrendered to the existence of Israel to the uh, to the uh, this fact called Israel that uh, they of course the Iranians uh, uh, the quote unquote Israel you know the Zionist entity which to them is a regime imposed from the outside by the international order by the Americans by some Jewish Zionist conspiracy but. It is not a real nation, it is not a real people, it is all in uh, a piece of fiction, but it is part of the post-45 international order and we are, the, we are still in the game of destroying Israel and destroying this order, while the Sunnis have faltered and surrendered and, 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 and failed. Now, what the tragic aspect of this is that by now, 43 years after the revolution, the only, almost only legitimizing factors that remain for the Iranian revolution is this being in the business of destroying Israel. Because everything else has gone awry. Because every, and the nuclear quest, because everything else went wrong. This, uh, Iran, when uh, Khomeini came to power, Iran was significantly richer than its neighbor Turkey, which has roughly the same population. So GDP and GDP per capita work the same way. Just a comparison, Turkey was distinctly poorer. It is now distinctly richer than uh, Iran, and the, the average Turk is richer than the average Iranian. The idea that the revolution will bring purity, what it brought is corruption, 
um, concentration of control over industrial and other businesses in the hands of a coterie of uh, Iranian Revolutionary Guard uh, core uh, um, fat cats. Um, there's there's uh, prostitution, drugs, uh, huge uh, economic disadvantages for many Iranians, particularly those of southern Tehran, the area of Islam Shah. The situation, instead of delivering for the Iranian people, the revolution basically impoverished them, impoverished their lives, and many Iranians know it. So the one legitimizing factor for the re regime is we are defying the international order. We, we are, I know we are suffering, but one day all this suffering will be vindicated when, well, when we are a nuclear power, when we are a power to reckon with in the region, a hegemonic power in the region, and when we will be those who would lead to the ultimate goal, this, this happy day of the uh, liberation of Jerusalem, the destruction of the, or the collapse and destruction of the Zionist entity. All right, so I have two questions about that, because it's fascinating. So one question is whether or not it's working on the street. In other words, the average Iranian, how much is she or excellent, he? Well, let's start with that. I mean, does she or he walk me down the street saying, oh yeah, this regime is about wiping out Israel and I care about that? Or do they kind of roll their eyes and say, this regime makes a big deal about that, but obviously what I care about is putting food on the table and raising my kids and so forth. Where, where's the Iranian people on this? Well, um, I think we have evidence from the demonstrations in recent years that for many Iranians, it's very, very difficult to do any effective survey in a country. Uh, well, they're obviously not monolithic, just is, like in any other country. But the Iran does have a, a, a civil society of sorts that is still from time to time emitting signs of life and we've had significant demonstrations against the regime particularly in 2019 and you hear sometimes very brutal slogans against the Palestinians. Why are we paying this price in order to uh, uh, Basically, uh, why are we suffering because of an enmity to Israel, which is not in our interest? Why are we why are we sending so much money to Hezbollah and Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and so on? Um, there was even one case in which a very brave soul hanged an Israeli flag on a, on a bridge in Tehran. But uh, uh, basically, um, I I think that don't want to speculate about. The poor working class, which are completely stuck in with caring about some food tomorrow. I'm not right. even talking about chicken. Chicken is a right. fantasy, but bread. Uh, but it, within the uh, political class, I think there is a lot of skepticism about all this uh, propaganda uh, of the regime. We saw this elsewhere in history that uh, once the regime vanished, the willingness of people to buy their propaganda vanished with it. Uh, clearly, there is a pro-American sentiment among many Iranians. We saw this after 9-11, for example. Contra totally contrary to uh, the forced marches of demonstrators organized by the regime and its tools, the, 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 the besieged, the, vol uh, the volunteer young people of, uh, of, of the uh, IRGC, they go out in the streets sh shouting, Mark Bar America, death to America, death to Israel. How many actually believe this uh, is another question. Uh, 
I hope and I believe that if the regime goes one day, and it will not be a linear thing, it will happen probably in the way we saw in other places where uh, what was solid all of a sudden becomes uh, uh, thin air, like right. some of the Russian communist dictatorship, like Mubarak's dictatorship. Or even the Soviet Union for a while. And even, well, in a sense. It's not going to be a linear thing. Right. It, it will happen one day because this regime has made itself uh, hated by a good so number of people. So if this regime people. should fall one day, you're optimistic that maybe... That maybe quite a good number of Iranians. Uh, I'm not sure if they will give up on their ambition to be a strong regional power, but they may very well realize that uh, uh, being in the business of destroying Israel is not the way to do it. Okay, well now let's turn to the current perhaps revival of the Iran deal. Um, before we get to whether it's good for Israel, bad for Israel, how Israel should respond, I just want to stay inside the head of the Iranian leadership for a second and ask you this. If one of the keys to their still promoting the essential nature of the revolution and of their leadership is this taking over the world order and destroying Israel in the process, why isn't making a deal with the Americans of all people and lessening the battle with Israel as a result, in theory at least, um, why doesn't that undermine their ideological legitimacy? Why doesn't that put them in the category of the Sunnis who have also capitulated? Well, because they don't feel they have capitulated. They feel that the West has accepted their terms. This was true in 2015 when they were able to force the international community to accept the ongoing uranium enrichment on a fairly large scale uh, as part of the ongoing uh, permission for Iran uh, to basically sustain a program that everyone knew was a military program. Uh, they, they got uh, the, the six negotiating powers to agree not to sign, because it's not a signed paper, otherwise it would have gone to the Senate for ratification right. and died there. So it's not signed, but they have managed to get them to agree to a text that begins with the bold assertion of a lie, which is that this is a civilian project. It's not. It has never been a civilian project. Even its size is clearly the size of a military project, too small to be uh, um, power, power production, and it's too big to be researched. As I used to say, it's not a cat, it's not an elephant, it's a horse, it's a war horse, and it was always built as a war horse. And, and they got the West to basically desist from many things. Um, there's, they, there was no, nobody pursued uh, the hints about their previous military, uh, 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 possible military activities, so, uh, so-called the PMD, file, uh, possible military dimension. Um, they had immense sanctions relief and they were not required to give up the project. They were basically asked to delay it and they did delay it. Uh, if you think in terms of uh, Persian history, what are 10 years? Right. So uh, from their point of view, this was not a capitulation and uh, there's an interesting question as whether they are now going to except uh, what the West is hoping for. For example, 
and that the um, IAEA, International uh, Atomic Energy Agency, will actually be allowed to continue to conduct its investigation into uh, the PMD. Um, and the Iranians are saying, no, we didn't agree to that. So I'm not yet sure if this is not going to fall apart at the, the last moment over the internal inherent contradictions between Western expectations and Iranian, uh, the Iranian sense. They are not capitulating. The West is capitulating. And do you agree with that? This is a capitulation of the West before an Iranian uh, totalitarian murderous to, regime? To a large extent, I would say that given the leverage, the immense leverage of the West, given the uh, total disproportion of power, uh, Iran could have been coerced into a much more uh, demanding uh, agreement or, or arrangement, whether it was in 2015 or now. And the reason the West is not doing that is? Essentially, at the end of the day, because the, the determinant is, of course, the American position, and the United States is unwilling to even contemplate another military confrontation. And without a CMT, as I call it, credible military threat, there will be no resolution of the PMD and other aspects of the Iranian project. Without, and this is where Israel comes in. We have been willing to project a, a credible threat going back to 2010, in fact, I don't think that there would have been um, the, uh, the necessary UN resolution, UN Security Council resolution sanctioning Iran, like uh, UNSCR 1929, the major sanctions resolution, which passed 13 to 2, um, Brazil and Turkey dissenting. Uh, this would not have passed the way it did if it wasn't. Uh, for Israel saying in the background, unless you fix it that way, we'll fix it some other way. And Israel, I mean, obviously... What that's you what say we told the Chinese, that's what we told the Russians at the time. It had an impact. And Israel is trying to project a credible military threat once again in certain ways, right? Uh, if you listen to what um, Lapid, Gantz and Kohavi said, specifically Gantz, on the 8th of August, uh, now 2022, just a day after the fighting died down with the Iranian proxy in Gaza, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, they said, let all our enemies sit up and take notice. Uh, from, Khan Yunis, from Tehran to Khan Yunis, we will take preventive action when we see fit. Now, this ties to also the threats of another Iranian proxy, Hassan Nasrallah, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, to attack the Israeli uh, uh, gas extraction facilities in the Eastern Mediterranean. But it is also, but it extends all the way to Tehran. Without a credible military threat, uh, Western diplomacy is powerless to stop the Iranians from dictating their terms. And uh, we are looking at an agreement or a deal that would leave very limited time until Iran is free to enlarge its uranium enrichment uh, level um, so that the breakout time for the bomb would be practically zero, I mean, weeks. And that's a very dangerous... So outcome. now what about the people who say, yes, the breakout time would be eliminated almost entirely, etc.? 
But this is what they say, not what I'm saying. What they say is, but the Iranians are rational human beings at the end of the day, and they know that Israel has second strike capacity. They know that maybe other countries would come to Israel's defense if Israel was struck first. In other words, that to strike at Israel nuclearly is to basically commit suicide as Iran. And therefore, they say, despite all the bluster and maybe even the, 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 the ideological integrity, if you want to call it that, uh, they just wouldn't do it because they know it's the end of the day for them. Do you, do you buy that? Well, that's uh, literally a mad perspective. Mutual assured destruction. It's a basically the, the notion that uh, nuclear Iran can be contained by the way, even President Obama, loud and clear with his own voice, no, uh, no containment, uh, Biden says the same. There's a reason. A mad uh, sounds intellectually uh, stable. Well, people, it goes back Russia, to the Soviet Union-American days. People tend to forget that if it wasn't for a certain comrade Petrov on, on duty one night in 1983, we wouldn't be here. Because he figured out that this uh, image that he, he received from, uh, from the Soviet systems of an American launch against the Soviet Union was a mistake and not the real thing. Otherwise, if he, it was actually his duty to, to push the button. He didn't. He was actually even reprimanded for that. But, uh, but uh, that tells you that MAD is an extremely unstable condition. Even with rational players like... Uh, the Soviet Union and the United States, let alone with a country with certain fantasies and visions about transforming the human race and, and awaiting the Mahdi. But you don't really have to assume a, an irrational Iranian decision to attack. Let's simply assume a different scenario. And here I'm relying on uh, a Im bit of imagery from George Orwell. Um, which is a story I read uh, at high school and stayed with me, called Shooting an Elephant. Now, he was a, colon he was a colonial uh, officer in, in a Burmese village, Engli the only Englishman there and the only one with a gun. And uh, a rogue elephant has broken into the village, trampled a couple of people. By the time he is there with his gun, um, the elephant is completely docile, it's not going to do anything. But the entire village is standing behind him. He has the gun. You can see where this would le leads to. Now, let's assume the situation emerges in Lebanon, in Gaza, in the West Bank, uh, that uh, forces Israel to take massive military action. We are the rogue elephant. But now the Iranians are the ones with the gun. They've made the world know that they actually have it. And now the village gathers behind them, prodding them to action. How stable is a situation like this going to be? So you don't need to assume uh, uh, madness in that sense right. uh, to see that a mad uh, MAD relationship with a country like Iran is going to be extremely unstable. Moreover, the, uh, the con living under the constant threat of Iranian proxies firing us at us under the umbrella of an Iranian uh, nuclear deterrent is a nightmare that no Israeli uh, wants to live under. So obviously you think that it's in Israel's interest for this deal not to go through? Or for this deal to be much more robust, as uh, President Biden once said, uh, longer, stronger, 
Um, and uh, we, I also think most Israelis uh, fail to see why the United States and its European partners, leave, leave aside Russia and China, which have gone off in their own directions, but why should uh, a combination of such economic and strategic and military power succumb to the whims of a regime that has failed its own people uh, and, and uh, has no real leverage beyond uh, the sheer violence that they're willing to use. It's, it's very difficult for us to accept. It is to some extent, I think, a reflection of a fatigue with the long wars uh, that has set in uh, in, in, in American society, well, Europe has become averse to war uh, long, long before that. And, you know, sometimes I think to myself, if I, my only choice is between Germans who love war and Germans who hate war. I've made my choice already. But, but America needs to be credible. And, and uh, I wonder if that's how the Iranians look at it. And so one way of just wrapping this up, it's fascinating, and I'm so grateful to you for the time, but let's assume that it does go through. And let's assume that it's not much more robust than it is now. It's some version of what it looks like now. I think robustness is probably, I mean, you tell me, but I think robustness is probably a, a bit of a pipe dream at this point. And let's assume that it goes through. Um, Israel's response should be just very quietly to prepare for the day where it needs to be able to have a military option. Among other things, uh, it must make it very clear to the American administration at the highest level that we will not abide by this agreement. And if it has a clause, as did the JCPOA of 2015, that forbids action against Iranian infra uh, nuclear infrastructure, we are not going to abide by it, one way or the other, whether we take action against their scientists or against their facilities, or one day against their uh, um, bomb production uh, military site, whatever. We, are, we must retain our freedom of action, and we must distance ourselves from this text. Uh, it's a, an aspect of the present policy of Israel, as distinct from that of the previous government, they're making, uh, they're doing their best not to give this a political overtone. You know, we side with the as in BB versus Obama, as BB did to some. Was let's say, BB made it easy for Obama to castigate his position as some kind of pro-Republican intervention in American politics, regardless of its content, and that was, of course, for many people, including many good. Uh, Jewish friends of, of ours, as you may made very clear in your book, this was something that they found very hard to swallow. I remember a conversation I had with, with good friends. I said, look, if you think that Obama is right and we are wrong, and this would stop the Iranians and, and our way will not, well, let's have a serious discussion. But if you're just telling us that you, you don't offend an American president then you've learned nothing from Roosevelt's abandonment of the Jews during the war. But at the end of the day, this government uh, in Israel is trying to conduct the, the conversation uh, in much, uh, from much the same substantive position. There's no daylight between Lapid, Gantz, Kohavi, and Netanyahu on the question of the danger of a bad deal. 
but there is a, there's a, a nuance here in that they're not try, they're doing their best not to make it look as if they're lining up with one side of American politics against the other. Whether this would do us any good, I don't know. For one thing, uh, I think Israel is fully entitled to make it crystal clear to America, to the world, and to the Iranians that we do not. Uh, we, we, this agreement will not bind our hands in any way. This is fascinating, and uh, I think everybody who's heard this will now read the news through very different lenses and understand it with much more nuance, subtlety, and complexity. So I'm very grateful to you for that. Dr. Lehrman is also deeply the editor-in-chief, or one of the editors of the Jerusalem Strategic Tribune, which we will put a picture of uh, on the website when we, when we post this. And we'll put a link also for those who would like to read it online or subscribe and get a hard copy. It's actually a fascinating publication. And if this conversation interested you, this is the sort of analysis that you'd see on a lot of different issues in that magazine. And I highly recommend it. Uh, once again, Iran, thank you very much for your time on a very busy day. Really appreciate it. Look forward to future conversations. So do I. You've been listening to Israel from the Inside. Go to danielgordas.substack.com where you can hear more of these episodes. If you have ideas for topics you'd like us to explore, we'd love to hear from you. Until next time, I'm Daniel Gordas.